Hello and welcome to the Dynasty Baseball Pickups Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Corso, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Sontag. How's it going, Kyle? I'm doing well, man. You know, playoff baseball, so you can't complain too much. How are you doing? Uh, same. It's kind of a, that breather after the season's over and now fully into uh, fancy football and the playoffs and everything. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good time. Yeah, uh, so- you can't run away from me too much, hey? You're even in a fantasy football league with me now. Yeah, I, I told myself I wasn't going to get roped into Dynasty football, and here you are roping me into Dynasty football. So <laughs> It wasn't that hard to twist your arm. <laughs> no, it never is. That's why I'm in so many <laughs> leagues. Um, but yeah, today we're going to talk about baseball, not football, and um, we're going to do something kind of fun today. We're going to do kind of a post-mortem on the season. So we're going to talk about the uh, recent rule changes, um, the impact from those, you know, how it changes our strategy and what we learn from them. And then we're going to kind of do some superlatives. So we're going to talk, uh, go through and talk about our, you know, best and worst trades, our best and worst pickups, uh, players who we, you know, undervalued or overvalued, and really what kind of lessons we can learn um, from those victories and and those losses as well. So uh, let's get going started to talk about the rules. So Kyle, um, you know, we had a lot of new rules this year, three big ones, uh, stolen bases, pace of play and shift restrictions. But really, I think for fantasy, the main one was the stolen base rule. Um, What was your reaction to it? And what did you kind of take away from uh, the results of that change? So I think basically there were and really still are kind of two schools of thought regarding how, you know, this new stolen base rules will affect fantasy and did affect fantasy. Um, one being, you know, that you you don't really need to worry about drafting speed as much at the top of the draft because there's going to be more available throughout the draft and throughout the waiver wire process and all that. And on the other side of things, and this is kind of where I fell, you know, a lot of people saw the rule changes as an opportunity to separate themselves from the rest of the league in the stolen base category. And as I mentioned, that's the way I saw things. And what I really looked at was not that, you know, each player would steal X number more bases. I saw it as each player was going to steal X percent more bases. So, you know, those who were already stealing the most bags in the league were just going to separate themselves and my fantasy teams even further. So I wanted to go and get you know, uh, a Ronald Acuna Jr., a Corbin Carroll, uh, you know, those types of players who, you know, if you look at, you know, guys stealing 10 bags and you, I think it was something like a 40% increase in stolen bases this year, which is just wild. But, you know, those guys stealing 10 bases are now stealing 14 for you. Whereas guys stealing 40 bases by that same math are stealing 52. So, I took it more as an opportunity to separate myself from the league rather than not worrying about it as much at the start of the draft. What about you? How did this affect, you know, your strategy? Well, I think, I think it's great that you brought up drafting, right? Because I think there's two different conversations we can have. We could have the redraft conversation and the dynasty conversation. So in redraft, I've always been a big proponent of get your steals early. Like, you know, those first few rounds those are where you can really get the power speed guys and that's Mm -hmm. always what i go after in in redraft um and just like with the analysis you just gave that doesn't change much if anything it it puts more uh emphasis on getting those power speed guys early because now instead of a power speed guy meaning you know 30 home runs you know maybe 15 stolen bases now a power speed guy could mean 30 home runs 40 stolen bases so (laughs) you know it, it really does put um put the emphasis on focusing on that early in redraft. Now in, in dynasty, um, you know, for me, I've always been a guy who prioritizes power over speed because I think power is more indicative of a player's overall uh, ability to stick in a lineup. Um, And a lot of those speed specialists, you know, they lose their jobs because stolen bases are not that important in, in real life. And because power is connected to runs and RBI, you know, when you're playing in a category league um, where you're not necessarily playing in a roto league where you have to have, you know, a certain number per year, you can kind of punt the steals category. So that's kind of all how I've treated it a lot in Dynasty. And, you know, you could, like you said, you can make two arguments for this increase in stolen bases across the board. You could argue that, 
well, speed specialists are more important now, right? Because, you know, in the past, a speed specialist might get you 30 steals. Well, now they could potentially get you, you know, 70 steals or 60 steals. Um, look at Estuary Ruiz, for example. But I look at it like I don't have to settle for the speed specialist. I can get guys with power that can contribute, you know, 10 plus steals, 20 plus steals. And I did a little bit of analysis um, in particular on this rule. I know you had thrown out, you know, the, the increases league wide, but I wanted to look at kind of the top performers and see, you know, how at the top the stolen base landscape changed. So bear with me for a second. I'm going to go through some quick numbers. So last year there were six players with 30 or more steals and John Birdie led the way with 41. Uh, this year there were 18 players with 30 or more steals. Um, so we went from six to 18 and then obviously Acuna led the way with 73 stolen bases. We had six players with more than 40 stolen bases this year. Um, last year, there weren't a lot of power speed guys. So we only had um, for the players with 30 or more stolen bases, only three had 15 or more home runs and nobody had more than 20 home runs. Whereas this year with the players with more than 30 steals, we had 13 who had more than 15 home runs and eight had more than 20 home runs. So we really saw more of those power speed guys develop. And you can kind of see that with the traditional, you know, you think of 2020 or 3030. Last year, we had no 3030 players. We only had nine 2020. This year, we had 19 2020 players. We had three 3030. And then, of course, Acuna, uh, who was 4040 or really 4070. But you know, I think that shows that those power speed blends now exist a lot more. And I think that should really be what you're looking for. You know, you don't want to necessarily get stuck with a power specialist or a speed specialist. You want to get that guy who's going to contribute in both places, particularly in deeper leagues where an injury, you know, can really cost you if you're relying on those specialists. So that's the biggest takeaway for me is really try to get guys who can do both. Yeah, I think that's a really great point and a great distinction. And one one that I didn't necessarily, you know, clarify in my point. I agree with you. You you want those power speed combos, the guys that you're going to grab at the top of the draft more so than, as you mentioned, the the stolen base specialists like an Esther Ruiz, um, who isn't going to give you anything else. Who is maybe your more of a backup plan towards the back end of a draft. Uh, if you realize that you, you know, missed out on those power speed guys, then maybe there are a few more fallbacks now that are worth a little bit more, but I do agree. You still need to go after those top end power speed guys. Yeah. And you know, again, that that's obvious, right? I mean, it's no, <laughs> it's not rocket science that yeah, you want power no. and speed and, 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 uh, and dynasty especially, but at the same time, I think the point I'm trying to make is like, there's more out there. So you don't, you know, you can settle for the guy who's going to get you, you know, quote unquote, settle for the guy who's going to get you, you know, 23 home runs and and 19 stolen bases or something rather than going after the guy who's more of a lock to get you 30 home runs. I, I think mm -hmm. ha having those steals that you can kind of chip in across your lineup is going to be more valuable now because you have such extremes um, with both home runs and steals. Home runs were up this year as well. So, um, so yeah, I think that's my biggest takeaway is just, you know, Prioritize guys that can do both. Um, so the other big rule changes this year, I'm kind of lumping them together, and that was the shift restrictions and the uh, the pitch clock, so pace of play. Uh, I, I lump them together because I really think they impact the pitchers more than the hitters necessarily, um, but you might have a differing point of view. So what, what are your thoughts on those two? I, I actually have maybe the exact same point of view as you, at least in regards to the fact that it affects uh, pitching more so than hitting. Um, and I think that was kind of the the big thing that I missed coming into the season. I did see a lot of these changes, obviously outside of, you know, some of the pace of play stuff that was directly affecting pitchers, but the shift rule and some of the other rules I, I saw, you know, overall more so that, you know, these changes were targeting offense and how that would affect offense for fantasy. But I failed to kind of think about how it would affect pitching, especially for fantasy-wise. And I think what ended up happening was that, you know, the truly elite pitching, 
in my opinion, became even more important because there were fewer pitchers than ever performing at those truly elite levels, or at least it felt that way. Yeah, so if I, you didn't have, you know, a guy like Garrett Cole at the the top of a draft, you were kind of hurting in a lot of pitching categories, especially when it comes to ratios. Yeah, I, I have some data to kind of back that up if you want to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Throw it at me. So so kind of similar to what I did with with uh, hitters, I kind of went and looked at, you know, pitchers and, and strikeouts and walks and kind of because I knew like across the board, strikeouts were up this year. Walks were up. Innings pitched was down. Um, so I kind of wanted to see, you know, how that broke down with, with the top of the, you know, of the player pool this year versus last year. So last year we had eight pitchers who threw over 200 innings this year. It fell down to five. Um, last year we had 11 pitchers with over 200 strikeouts with Cole leading the way at 257. this year. It jumped up to 17 players with more than 200 strikeouts with Strider leading the way at 281. So really we saw less innings, but more strikeouts per inning. Um, this year. And then we also saw in a pretty massive increase of walks as well. So and this is um, uh, two pitchers last year had 70 plus walks uh, with Dylan Cease leading the way with 78. And then this year we had 11 pitchers with 70 plus walks, five with 80 plus and two with 90 plus. So we really saw a big increase with walks this year. I, I think the pitch clock has a lot to do with that. Um, Blake Snell actually led the way with 99 walks this year. So I think yeah, kind he of, was a real enigma this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah, well, we we might talk about him later. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I looked at ERA specifically because this is for you know qualified pitchers. So it, it's kind of sticky because I think the qualification for pitchers is like 160 plus innings um, for evaluating ERA. Obviously, not a lot of pitchers get over that now. So. Um, it, it actually ended up being about the same amount of qualified pitchers last year versus this year. But in terms of where they broke down ERA wise, it was really surprising. So last year we had 19 players with a sub three ERA um, and then one with a sub two, which was Verlander. And then we had 36 pitchers with a sub four ERA. And again, this is, you know, once that qualifies, so 160 uh, plus innings pitched. So this year we had, we went from 19 with a sub three ERA to five with a sub three hmm. RA. Um, the lowest this year was Snell again, <laughs> 2.25 ERA. So led the league in walks and, uh, and ERA as well. Um, and then we had 29 this year with a, a sub four ERA. So again, we had less pitching below a three ERA, less pitching below a four ERA with about the same number of pitchers who qualified uh, for that, that innings limit. So this was kind of a surprising takeaway to me. You know, I, I kind of knew just, you know, what you said is that the best performing, the best performers, um, you know, the, the aces were still being aces, but there were just fewer of them that were reaching that level. And there really was um, a pretty steep drop off after that. But kind of looking last year versus this year and those performances, I mean, we really see that those aces, there's so few of them now. Like it, it really has whittled down to where there's very, very few elite pitchers. And then we have just kind of this big uh, group of solid pitchers. And then we have kind of the, um, the back end guys, but I don't know. I, I, I think you, you said that you wanted to make sure to prioritize and, and redraft, you know, getting one of those elite starting pitchers. I think I'm with you there, but how do you view this in dynasty? Uh, because pitchers can be such volatile assets. I mean, we've seen, you know, last year's Cy Young winners, struggle this year, get hurt or, or whatever. I mean, look at what happened with, with Sandy Alcantara. So where do you kind of, does your, does your attitude change in dynasty? Like, are, are you still looking to, you know, make sure you have, you know, one elite starting pitcher, a couple elite starting pitchers on your roster, or does that change uh, when you're looking more from a dynasty lens? Yeah. So it, it does change a little bit when we're looking at it for, for dynasty purposes. And it kind of depends because everyone comes into a dynasty league, a startup draft with kind of different strategies, right? If you are someone that, you know, wants to win and wants to win now, go get that guy, go get the Garrett Cole, who you know is going to be the cream of the crop. But if you are someone who is willing to wait a little bit longer, it becomes a little bit, 
murky because as you mentioned it can be so inconsistent year over year if you don't have one of those truly elite pitchers and who's to say you know whether the guys at the top of the prospect list your Paul Skeens your Ricky Tiedemann, and your Jackson Job are going to be those truly elite guys that the prospect reports say they are because anything can happen when it comes to prospects so it's becomes a lot more of a gray area where I don't think in dynasty I'm necessarily targeting the elite of the elite of the elite because personally I'm not someone coming out of a startup draft that's trying to win that year I'm trying to build a team that maybe it'll take a couple of years before I'm truly competitive but I will have sustained success so rather than targeting your Garrett Cole, the older elite pitchers, I'm targeting a lot of those kind of solid guys in that, you know, three and a half to four ERA range who aren't going to stand out, but are really going to, you know, just kind of lock down and solidify your ratios overall. Yeah, I I agree 100% with that. Like that's, you know, that, that was my kind of a strategy I had was, you know, in dynasty was obviously not overvaluing pitching because it can change on a dime, you know, guys can get hurt the very next day and then have Tommy John and and then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe never really recover. So, you know, you never want to put too many uh, assets into starting pitching, you know, but seeing kind of this, this breakdown and seeing the changes that we've seen this year, I'm, you know, more than ever willing to just invest, like you said, in that middle group you know, those kind of not the top tier necessarily because it's going to cost too much, but more of that, that middle group, the mid rotation type where, you know, they could have years where they're among the top or they could take a step forward or they could fall off and, and be nothing, but at least they have the potential and they have, you know, most of them have like a decent floor where, like you said, they're not going to kill your ratios. You maybe you don't get, you know, 12 strikeouts per inning or whatever, but maybe you get nine. And, and that's fine. Um, so that's really what I'm looking to target. Uh, so I, I agree as well, you know, just kind of having more depth because again, you can see where you can lose a pitcher at any time. So it's really, really important to not just rely on, you know, one or two really, really good pitchers and have, you know, be relying on streamers and dynasty. I mean, personally, I don't think you should ever rely on streamers and dynasty. Like you should have a rotation where you have, you know, have some faith in your guys uh, and have some depth. So, yeah, I um, completely agree with you there. But overall, you know, the stolen base rule, the pace of play rule, the shift restrictions. As a fan, what do you think of them? As a fan, you know, it was it was great. the The only rule that I really don't like, and I know that they needed to come up with something when they implemented the pitch clock. I I don't like limiting pitchers to you know, how many times they can pick off during an at-bat. Because I, I think, you know, we we saw it a number of times in season. After the second pickoff attempt, a base runner would turn to their coach and go, hey, that's too right. I can just run now. And, it, it you know, I think that really gives hitters an advantage. And maybe this is me speaking from, you know, the experience of a guy that's pitched all my life rather than, being a hitter, but I, I didn't like limiting pitchers to two pickoffs per at bat. I know they had to do something so that they couldn't just keep stepping off and resetting the clock, but I feel like there's got to be a different way. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely get your point of view on that. Um, I don't mind it as much personally. I, I think, you know, 99% of the time, you know, pickoffs don't do anything other than, you know, keep the runner there. So from a fan perspective, it's just a really boring play. Um, you know, it, it extends the game. So I, I was happy to see that go. I hope that we see a little bit more kind of strategy with those um, throws to first. I feel like kind of the end result this year was there be, you know, one and then they wouldn't do it again. But um, I think, you know, Overall, I think it's it's an improvement. So we'll see if they tweak some of these rules. I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, I really enjoyed them as a fan. I really enjoyed not having to devote, you know, three plus hours on a typical game and have it be more like, you know, t- 
two and a half to two hour two and a, hours and forty five minutes. So, um, you know that that time savings is great when you're talking about potentially 162 games <laughs> during the season. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it, it definitely <laughs> did what it was meant to do. It, you know, no complaints there. And the steals, obviously, you know, from a fantasy perspective, uh, it was great to see an increase in steals. Oh yeah, it was a lot super exciting. Yeah. Um, so I have one more rule to discuss, and that actually wasn't one of the new rules this year, but actually came about um, with the collective bargaining agreement. And this is the first year that we really saw it have an impact, and that's the prospect promotion incentive. So this is the incentive for teams to, you know, bring up their prospects earlier uh, due to um, incentives if they win awards, and um, you know, potentially can earn the team's draft picks and everything like that. So uh, what? What was your kind of perspective on what we saw this year with those prospect promotions? Uh, yeah, first of all, loved it because we started seeing tons and tons of guys who in past years we probably wouldn't have, especially, you know, think about just the last month or so. Would we have seen a Heston Kierstad or a Junior Caminero making their debuts or would we be waiting another year? Outside of that, as far as how I view things from a fantasy perspective, I think the biggest thing that changed for me is the fact that age to level in the minors doesn't really matter as much anymore now that we're seeing teams getting uber aggressive with their prospects. You know, you look at Ethan Salas as a 17-year-old in AA or Jackson Holiday making it all the way to AAA the year after being drafted out of high school even, or, and this is the extreme example, but Nolan Shanwell being called up to the bigs by the angels in the same season as he was drafted. You know, in the past we'd see an 18, 19 year old prospect in low a and think, okay, he's got, you know, two or three more years at least before we see him in a big league uniform. But that timeline has been greatly accelerated because of these rules. And I think now more than ever, we really have to focus on talent and put a lot greater weight into that than proximity. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, one thing I keep hearing about is the age to level doesn't matter as much. And I know you just said it, but I think you put a good perspective on it is that the age to level doesn't matter as much for the young prospects. Mm -hmm. However, with everybody getting rushed, when you start seeing these, you know, 24, 25 year olds, they're now playing against a much younger crowd of players with all these other prospects getting rushed. If they're not moving, that's a big red flag. And I, I think, you know, I'm more likely now to kind of be skeptical about those older prospects that just aren't moving uh, or advancing within some of these systems because of the fact that a, you know, other prospects in those same systems are, and B, they could potentially playing be playing against, you know, younger, less experienced competition. Um, yeah. So I think the big thing, that does still need to be taken into account a little bit is when some of these old for the level players were drafted and whether or not the canceled 2020 season has played a role in their development. Because if they're someone that's been around since 2018 in a minor league system and they're 25 and they're still stuck in double A, there's probably not a lot of reason to get excited about them. But if they were drafted in 2020 or even either of the past two years since then their development in one way or another whether it be you know in in college or in their first professional season that didn't happen their development was kind of stunted by what happened that year and I think you know we need to give them a little bit more leeway than the guys that have been around for more uh time before COVID shut down yeah, that's a good point, but I think we're nearing kind of the end of that grace yes, period. Yes, yeah, me. we absolutely are. But still uh, still a number of players. Like, the, the big one that comes to my mind is, you know, Blake Dunn and how his development was affected. We discussed him a few podcasts ago, but I, I think COVID had a big impact on why he's still in the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think overall, I, I love the rule. It's what we've always wanted to see. You know, one thing that, I'm going to pay more attention to with this is also going to be, you know, who do I have that's at double a or triple a coming into the year and just kind of anticipating more um, and at the traded line, anticipating more of a potential roster crunch. Cause I dealt with that a lot this year where I had a lot of guys I did not think were going to debut 
um, by the end of the year, and they did. And it really created problems with me as I'm trying to, you know, be competitive in playoff runs and, you know, down the stretch, I can't trade anymore. So I can't relieve some of these roster crunches. And then all of a sudden I have guys who I can't stash in the minors um, and just, you know, being kind of inundated with a bunch of players who maybe aren't getting full-time at bats at the big league level yet, or they're struggling in their first um in their first exposure to the big league level. So I think just having more of a, a long-term strategy and making sure my minors are more balanced to have enough players at the lower levels that I don't experience such a glut of players all being promoted at the same time uh, is something that I'm going to look for in the future as well. Uh, okay. Well, that that's our rules discussion. Um, so now we're going to get into some of our superlative. So yeah, we're going to start out talking about our best and worst trades. So Kyle, what was your best trade from this last season? So this might be a little bit of recency bias, given how one of the players I acquired is performing lately. But I do think this is by far the best trade I made this year. And this was one that I made prior to the season starting. Um, but I traded away Adolis Garcia, who gets knocked a little bit in this league because we score OBP as its own category. But it was Garcia and Brady Singer, along with my fifth-round FYPD pick this year, for Royce Lewis, Brady House, a third-round FYPD, and Forrest Whitley, who's largely inconsequential. But I really like the return I got here. Now, Adolis is still a great player. Don't get me wrong. But in an OBP league, I really don't mind giving up a guy who will be going into his, at the time it was, you know, just prior to his age 30 season, who kind of perpetually looks like he's overperforming his metrics and has always had trouble just getting an OBP over 300. Now, he did have a career year in that regard, and I think nearly had a 330 OBP, but I don't really see him you know, doing a whole lot of that again, not to mention the fact that his stolen bases in a year where everyone's stolen bases were up dropped dramatically. He stole 25 bases last year. He stole nine this year. Add that to, you know, the tremendous upside that Brady House shows as well as what Royce Lewis has shown us in the second half of the season. And I'm really excited about that package. Yeah, I love that trade a lot. I've never been a big Garcia guy and, like you mentioned, with those low OBP guys, it doesn't take much for them to just fall off a cliff. I mean, we saw it with like Javi Baez, where yep. he just all of a sudden that's it. And um, yeah, I think you could definitely, you know, be be proud of that trade for sure. The the only worry I have with someone like Royce Lewis is just the injury history. But yes, the upside absolutely. the upside is so big there, and he's such a fun player. Um, yeah, yeah really, and that really was kind of the the risk I was taking. This is a rebuilding team where I was trading away some big league assets and willing to take a bit of a chance on a guy who, you know, at the time was recovering from an ACL injury. But if he can stay healthy and keep doing what he's doing, I really like this deal. Yeah, and you said that was a, a preseason trade? Yes. Okay. Yeah, mine was a preseason trade as well. This was actually a really early trade. So this was back in December of 2022, I made this trade and that just goes to show like throughout the off season, you should still try to trade. Um, you can get some pretty big deals before the start of, um, you know, even for the finish of free agency and before the start of the, of spring training. So uh, my trade was, I, um, I sent Luis Ortiz, the pitcher for the pirates and I received back Spencer steer. So at the time, this was actually a, a trade. I wasn't sure if I was going to regret or not, you know, Luis Ortiz had, a small stint with the pirates back at the end of last season. And he looked really good. Yeah, um, he, 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 you know, the stuff looked good. Uh, the performance was good. He kind of came out of nowhere and, and was a real buzzy uh, prospect kind of coming into this season. And I had a lot of people approach me for my Luis Ortiz shares. Um, and I didn't, it's not necessarily that I didn't believe in Ortiz, but I just, I didn't really believe in the Pirates pitching uh, development. I had suffered through the Rowanzi Contreras experience and uh, I really liked Spencer Steer. You know, I needed a, a, you needed another bat. I felt like he was underrated, you know, that he was going to be kind of a solid, uh, you know, 800 plus OPS bat. He was going to get me, um, you know, maybe 20 home runs and, and just be a solid contributor for my team. 
Um, obviously this one went two different ways. So Luis Ortiz had a terrible season, you know, his, his K rate bottomed out, his walk rate skyrocketed, you know, his ERA estimators were, he had an XERA of almost seven X FIP over five FIP over five, yeah, four, seven, eight ERA. So he was just awful. Um, steer became a really, really solid asset this year. Uh, he had 23 home runs. What I wasn't expecting were the stolen bases. So he had 15 stolen bases, uh, a 271, 356, 464 line. So just an awesome slash line, you know, walked over 10% of the time, struck out around 20%. You know, he had a brutal July, but otherwise was a pretty consistent contributor for my fantasy team. And the kicker was he ended up with four position eligibility. So he could play at first, second, third, and outfield. And I think he'll hold that eligibility going into next year, at least. So, you know, he's a guy I'm super excited to have on my team and to give up a, a pitcher who ended up, you know, I think is on the wire and, and pretty much every league right now uh, was a great win for me. Yeah, that's that's an awesome trade. You did a, an excellent job there selling high on the hype of a guy who I, I think that the key thing there for me is you sold high on the hype of a guy who didn't have hype prior to his debut last season, right? It yeah. would be different if this was a prospect with a little more pedigree. You might be a little bit more weary of selling him, but no one really know knew who Luis Ortiz was, unless you were really into the the deeper realms of fantasy prior to that debut, where he just kind of popped off. So I think you did a really good job with that deal. Yeah, thank you. Um, that means a lot because I'm going to talk about my worst trade now, um, which <laughs> I rock ironically was a trade with you so <laughs> yeah i so, didn't yeah. want to rub too much salt in the wound i didn't bring this one up as one of my better deals so this one this one hurts so on so many levels so uh for this one i sent anthony santander in a fifth round pick um this was another preseason trade and to add insult to injury this actually took place on my birthday uh Ooh. february 4th and so again i gave up anthony santander in a fifth round pick for a third round pick cody morris and robert hassel the third so at the time i was experiencing somewhat of a, a roster crunch um i had i think this was prior to fypd you know i needed to make some space i had too many big leaguers i needed some prospect eligible players and i had a lot of first base outfielder types and i thought you know santander is coming off a good year but he's had a really uh, extensive injury history you know, maybe this is my chance to sell high on him and, you know, he could get hurt this year was, was kind of my thought process. It wasn't that I didn't like Santander, but I just, I was worried that he was going to get hurt or, or kind of regress. Um, I liked Cody Morris. He had a cup of coffee at the end of, of 2022. You know, he looked like he was going to be part of that uh, guardians rotation. You know, I, I had faith in their pitching development and then Robert Hassel, you know, he had really struggled after the trade to Washington but he had been really good prior to that with San Diego, you know, e even last year. And I thought, you know, maybe it was just an adjustment period or he was dealing with an injury. You know, this is a good buy low. We'll see what happens this year. And this trade could not have gone any worse. So uh, 14 days after that trade, uh, Cody Morris suffered a lat injury um, and got put on the 60-day uh, IL. He missed most of the season. When he came back, he could not control the ball. So he had walks, walk rates over six per nine, uh, was converted into a reliever at the big league level, had a six, seven, five ERA. His estimators were terrible. Um, looking at the underlying stuff, his velo actually went up, but batters were not f uh, fooled at all. And they just torched him. I mean, you know, they weren't swinging at his stuff outside the zone. And then when he would put stuff in the zone, it was just getting hammered. So, I ended up dropping him in this league and really everywhere else I had him. I think I traded for him in two leagues and I don't know what his role is going to be going forward. Like, is he going to be a middle reliever if he does ever get, find himself back in the starting rotation? Because again, the, the stuff didn't really deteriorate that much. And I think he's still got a mid nineties fastball. Um, I, I might be interested in picking him back up again, but it's definitely a big loss uh, in terms of this trade. And then the other main piece I got back, Robert Hassel, um, I didn't initially, I wasn't targeting him or anything. I went back and checked our conversations. I actually wanted um, Luciano in that trade. Um, but, you know, you weren't willing to part with Luciano. So I settled for Hassel. And 
you know, same kind of deal with Morris. It was just a disaster season. His K rate skyrocketed. So he's now striking out, uh, was striking out over 30% of the time at double a, where he spent most of the season. He only had an 81 WRC plus there. He had an ISO less than one, um, just 18 home runs and 13 stolen bases in 106 games. So here was a guy known for his hit tool. Now the hit tool, you can't even bank on, you know, the power regressed. And that was the big question was, would he even have, would he improve in power? It's gone the other way. You know, the speed's nothing significant. I mean, this is a, we talked about in our last episode, this is a guy who, you know, he's on the verge of losing all value. Um, I'm not dropping him yet, but if he gets off to a slow start next year, you know, there's a very good possibility he could be hitting the wire. So I basically gave up Santander who had a 28 home run season backed up everything he did last year, uh, played a career high in games, had a career high plate appearances, set a career high in OBP, and just looks like a solid uh, power bat for years to come for two pieces that will, you know, could very well end up uh, hitting the wire. So this was a huge loss for me. Uh, You had to feel pretty great about it, though. Yeah. So as you mentioned, obviously, you know, felt felt pretty good about that deal. Um, Yeah. So the way I looked at it in particular with Santander was that, you know, his injuries and I hope I'm I'm correct here. But I I believe I remember seeing that his injuries weren't really connected or recurring. It was sort of an oblique here, a shoulder there, a knee, an ankle. It wasn't, you know, a nagging knee injury or anything like that. So I had I had hope that he would be able to stay healthy. Because a lot of the markers, the metrics, the numbers were really good. So I I, you know, was banking on a healthy season here and was really fortunate to be correct there as far as the the prospects I sent you go you know Cody Morris was never a guy that I was super excited about he just he always lacked something for me so he was a guy that I I really didn't have to give a second thought to when uh when negotiating that deal as far as you know Luciano for you know, hassle which one I wanted to uh, kind of provide to you, send back to you in this deal. I just saw Hassel's numbers, even when he was with San Diego, I saw them drop off uh, in the latter half of his tenure there prior to the trade. He just, he didn't look like the same hitter, as you mentioned, you know, the hit tool that he was known for just kind of, disappeared and while I wanted to bet on him and you know hold on and bet that he would be able to turn things around it was hard to pass on what I was hopeful Santander could be yeah that makes sense well congratulations on that one <laughs> thank you and you know belated happy birthday too yeah <laughs> great not not the birthday present i wanted there um so uh let's transition into our best and worst pickups so what was your uh best pickup of this last season so i had a couple of guys that come to mind um i'll touch on them both just real briefly here but the first one being a prospect uh that is robbie snelling left-handed pitcher for san diego who rose from you know relative obscurity to i believe a consensus top 100 prospect who i see only rising further up the ranks this next year he looks really good from the left side and everything i've heard about him is just that the intangibles with this kid are off the charts the other guy i grabbed another pitcher who i believe will also be even more valuable next season uh, but this one's a big league reliever. That's Yenier Cano. You know, going through my my waiver wire ads, doing my research for this episode, I was really happy to see I grabbed a ton of shares of him. Obviously, I, you know, maybe I saw a game or something because on April 24th, I grabbed him in all of my leagues except for maybe one or two. And from there, just watched his stock soar as he rattled off however many perfect innings in a row it was after that point um you know i had a few offers for him in various leagues throughout the year but i'm really glad i decided to hold on 
because as I stated, I think he's going to be even more valuable next year because Felix Bautista, the Orioles closer all season long, is due for Tommy John surgery, and it looks like Cano is the next man up. Yeah, that's a great call there. Um, I ended up with zero shares, and now I know why. <laughs> yeah, because you got him everywhere. That one too. Because <laughs> I remember watch. I remember that insane, you know, scoreless perfect streak he was on um, to start the season. But yeah, I mean, great call out there. It's something that we have not really spent a lot of time talking about on this podcast at all is relief pitchers. But um, you know, they definitely have value, and when you know, especially when you're in a saves hold league, like we're in a lot of, you know, if you can get that that impact reliever, they can, you know, things can happen. They can end up being a, a closer on a great team and and you've got that. So those are a couple of, of great pickups there. Um, similar to your Stelling pick, uh, which I really like as well. My best pickup of the year was another guy who was a first year player draft that went undrafted in a lot of places. And that would be Sebastian Walcott. So mm. I actually got him in four different leagues. Um, he was a guy who... It was kind of borderline if he was to be a late round pick or not. Uh, and I think in a, like one league I was in, he was a late round pick, but in most of them, he went undrafted. And, you know, just from the very start of spring training, there were these glowing reports about him that this guy had the ceiling and this guy, um, you know, was going to be an incredible prospect. So I grabbed up every share I could um, as soon as those reports started coming out and ended up with a top 50-ish prospect. So, you know, you can argue that the numbers weren't amazing. Um, he spent, you know, the majority of time at Complex, ended with a 100 WRC+, plus, but as a 17-year-old. Um, did have a high K rate, but had seven home runs and nine stolen bases in 35 games. So, you know, the tools are off the charts. There's still some questions about the refinement of those tools, but there's no doubting this is a prospect with one of the highest ceilings in the minors and to just pick them off off of waivers. Um, I feel pretty, pretty fortunate. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome pickup. I was lucky enough to grab a couple of shares of him as well. Um, and I'm going to touch on this a little bit later on another name that we're going to discuss for a different topic, but I think something that's really important that we learned this year from guys like Walcott and others who I may mention later um, is that we need to take each FYPD class, but in particular, each international class uh, kind of as separate entities. You know, we really got bogged down coming into this year on the fact that the last couple of years, the international class just really didn't live up to the hype. And I think because of that, a lot of people were just sleeping on this year's international class. And we ended up with a lot of really solid pickups, whether it be a free agent ad like Walcott for yourself or, you know, a, a late round ad like uh, he was for one of your other league members. Yeah. Uh quick question on, on kind of the international class, because the other big name from last year, we didn't see him at all this year. And that's... uh Celestin. So where do you see, Felon Celestin, where do you see, like, where do you value him at this point? Is he somebody who you might be considering, you know, buying low on this off season? Because again, someone with a lot of hype was up there with Salas as like the number one prospect potentially uh, in the FYPD last year and due to injury, um, never really got a chance to see him perform. What are your thoughts on Celestin? Yeah, I, I do think he's a good by low opportunity this year because as I mentioned you kind of need to take each international class uh on its own and and kind of evaluate them that way and this was a very strong international class so for him to have been one of the most highly regarded guys coming into the draft even though he's maybe you know slipped behind a few of these guys that he maybe wasn't before like a Walcott or a Rainer Arias or some of those other guys I think there's still some sneaky value here because he was so highly regarded in a class that ended up being so talented. I agree. Um, all right, let's transition to the negative side. So worst drop. Um, and I'll start with this one. This is one that I also did a number of leagues and that is Cole Reagan's. Um, this one hurts. I added him in five different leagues. Um, and the, the issue here is when I added him. So I added him 
in March during spring training where I saw that his stuff had taken a big step forward. And then, you know, he struggled um, to really have any kind of performance with the Rangers to get any, you know, big league time. And then obviously he got traded mid season. I ended up dropping him in all those leagues. And then he got called up with the Royals. And obviously the rest is history. He put up exceptional numbers, a two, six, four ERA, a one Oh seven whip, 11 K per nine, three walks per nine, just looked like an, you know, almost like an ACE, like looked like a really, really solid starting pitcher, someone that uh, you're dying to have in dynasty. And I could have had him in nearly all of my leagues. So um, yeah, that one hurt. And then my honorable mention there is Brandon Drury. Uh, I had him on one of my teams. I dropped him fairly on early on in the year when he started off slow, just because I didn't have a lot of faith in him um, kind of moving out of Cincinnati. He had the trade, I believe mid season last year and he struggled during the second half and he ended up putting up a really, really solid season. So wish I hadn't dropped a uh, jury as well. What do you got for your worst drop? Yeah. So my worst drop, the one name that came to mind above all others here was or Elvis Martinez. I only had one share coming into the year and I dropped him fairly early in the season because he was just terrible. You know, he had something like one batting average with like a 40% K rate. And I looked at those numbers for a guy who had never been known for his hit tool and saw, okay, you know, it's, it's just not happening and dropped him. And almost from that day on, he just, something clicked and he decided I'm going to cut down on my swing. I'm going to drop this strikeout rate. And he's starting to look like a semi-viable option for the Blue Jays at third base next year. If they choose not to bring back Matt Chapman, I'll, uh, throw out an honorable mention to a player similar to your your Reagan's drop in Michael King because it was you know very similar circumstances where I had him very early on in the year um but he just you know he was in that awkward swingman role where he wasn't providing you any value for you know bulk innings and wasn't getting you holds or saves and of course look at him now yeah yeah, two those two right there are two of the biggest uh, starting pitcher risers at the end of the year. So, um, yeah, those those both definitely hurt. Um, but on to a more positive note, what is your best FYPD pick uh, from yeah, last year? So I draft? alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, my best pick was Ethan Solace. <laughs> in particular, um, the one draft I grabbed him in because similar to you with Walcott. I was able to grab Solace in a couple of leagues as a free agent because he did go undrafted. But uh, I grabbed him in the fourth round of one of my drafts, and I can all but guarantee that if we were to redo last season's FYPD right now, he'd be an early first rounder. He'd be a lock, you know, top 10. No no question. I mean, right now, he, I, I would say, is a top 25 Uh fancy prospect i think yeah absolutely and again you know this this echoes the fact that we really need to look at international classes on a year-by-year basis and we can't get bogged down in well last year's class was so good or so bad and carry that opinion over to the next year yeah um my best fip day pick is also ethan salas <laughs> so. fantastic <laughs> I, do, I do, think do, that would be a got... lot of people's answers this year. <laughs> uh, I think for me, you know, this is when I ended up in three leagues. Um, the best place, you know, the the furthest down I got him was in the fifth round, uh, 5.5. And then the earliest I got him was in the third round, but that was a, a two-catcher league. Salas was a guy, you know, I had a lot of FYPDs. I got so many leagues. That was kind of, I wasn't too focused on in, in the first couple drafts I had just because he was a catcher, just because of what you mentioned with the, you know, the international guys, uh, a lot of skepticism on, you know, the quality and everything coming into the draft. But the more I kind of dug into him, I realized this guy was cold. Like he was, you know, he had already had a leg up on a lot of these international guys because he, um, you know, had played in the U S before, you know, he had, um, you know, he was advanced for like really, really advanced for his age. And, you know, the scouting reports were just off the charts. And the further we got into FYPD season, the more and more I got hyped about Salas, even though he was a catcher. And I think, you know, from everything you just said, and and I agree with like this guy is, uh, 
you know, a generational prospect. I mean, what he, he's, he's a double A at age 17 and it's not an old 17 Insane. either. Like he, he put up a 122 WRC plus at a ball when he debuted as a 16 year old. I mean, just, just nuts uh, yep. stuff. He so was the, catching you Darvish in spring training last year. I know just, just absolute great craziness. So I'm super excited to have him on my team. Um, just as you are a couple honorable mentions. Uh, I had got one share of Roman Anthony in the fifth round and a share of Jet Williams in the fifth as well, which loving those right now. You know what? Both of those are guys I should have mentioned earlier as honorable mentions for uh, pickups because those are names that I was able to just add off waivers in several leagues. Love those guys. Love those picks. Yeah. And I, I think just based off what we talked about in our best picks and, and obviously this conversation here, definitely pay attention to those undrafted guys in your FYPD because as you've seen, those can end up being your best picks Mm -hmm. uh, of the season. So, so great there. Uh, Now let's talk about our worst FYPD picks and mine is going to be Cam Collier. I I got duped. Like a lot of people, I fell in love with Cam Collier when I was doing my uh, FYPD research. And one of my, um, you know, like earlier FYPD picks, I think I was at one, one six, I picked him and he just has struggled this year. I mean, he put up a 98 WRC plus at a ball, um, 111 games. He only had six home runs, five stolen bases. You know, he did have a good walk and K rate and he's only 18 years old. So there's some, some hope there, but not what you expect from your first round pick. And, um, you know, he, he I could have had guys like the or Sanga. Um, and yeah, I just really disappointing pick there. Um, how about you? What's your, yeah, what's your so worst FYT? I, I did grab a Collier share myself, um, but I, I'm still very optimistic about him. I, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens next season. I'm by no means writing him off yet. It doesn't sound like you are either, but you want to see more out of him. Um, the first name that really came to mind with this question was taking Drew Jones over Jackson Holiday first overall. I think that's you know, what a lot of people are looking at right now. But Drew still has a lot of time uh, to make that pick pay off. So that's not my answer. My actual answer is Elijah Green. I grabbed him in a couple of leagues at third and fourth overall. I was willing to bet on the raw tools here, but I really should have been paying more attention to the red flag surrounding his hit tool and his swing and miss issues because they were evident in high school and if they're evident in high school they're going to be a huge problem professionally yeah i i had a couple shares of green as well i ended up trading one of them for joe adele and didn't feel bad about that trade so Hmm. that that goes to show you how far his value has fallen so yeah uh definitely feel your pain on on elijah green because he just looks lost uh yeah. but i i agree i i still have hope for jones i think uh he could potentially be a good uh buy low target this offseason um i think it also goes to show just how many you know bad picks there were in those first kind of consensus five or six um the fyps are are by no means a, a sure thing so um don't throw too many resources at trying to get you know, one of those top picks because you can easily miss. Um, that's my advice. Uh, all right. So let's talk about the player we overrated the most. Uh, so who, who's the one you overrated the most this so season? The big one for me here is Andy Rodriguez. I pushed him up a lot of my boards, uh, largely because I, I kind of bit on the power surge that he showed in 2022. And Really, I, I feel like I should have known better that that's not who he is. That was never going to be who he is. I still think he's going to be a solid big league catcher, but I overdrafted him in a number of uh, startups and overpaid for him in a couple of trades that, you know, I'm, I'm not thrilled about anymore now that I've got a little bit of clarity. Yeah. Yeah, he really hasn't hasn't shown a whole lot. But I think the the one hope for him is that um, you know, you see these catchers kind of get delayed. So like look at Kiebert Ruiz. You know, he really did nothing in his first uh, couple exposures to the big leagues, but then really came on in, in the second half of this year. So sometimes it can take these catchers um time to really, you know, catch their footing. But yeah, he's definitely one of the more disappointing um, you know, players this season. 
Uh, mine is a prospect as well, but you know, hasn't made the majors yet. And that's Yasser Mercedes. Um, mm-hmm. I was really high on him coming into this year, uh, put up a huge performance in the DSL and just really, really struggled uh, in complex ball. Um, so he hit under 200. He had a, a walk rate of 5%, WRC plus of 57. So he was just awful. Um, and, you know, is on the wire now. So uh, that's one that I was really fooled um, kind of by his performance in the DSL. And it it goes back to potentially, you know, learning some lessons about not overvaluing those performances until these guys come stateside. Um, in terms of my most underrated, that would be Hassan Kim. Um, this is one I kind of struggled with. I know he's not like a superstar, but I really thought Hassan Kim was kind of a nobody coming into this year. I really wasn't too impressed with his, you know, quote unquote breakout last year. Um, I thought this is a guy who, you know, might get you double digit home runs and steals, but not much else. And, you know, low, low totals in both, but uh, he performed really well. You know, he hit 260, had a 351 uh, OBP. Didn't have a huge slug at 398, but he had 17 home runs, 38 stolen bases. So you'll take that any day. Uh, had solid walk and K rates. And, you know, he's still just 27 years old. So uh, he ended up being a really solid piece for uh, a um, orphan team that I picked up that he was on. And then I actually ended up trading for him uh, mid-year as well in, in a team that won the championship. And he was a, a big part of my stretch run. So uh, I really, really underrated Hassan Kim. Yeah, that's a, a, a great call out because he, as you mentioned, he's not a guy that's ever going to get huge publicity because he doesn't put up the big numbers, but he's a guy that isn't going to ever hurt you in any category, really. You can just kind of plug him in, whether it be your, and has tremendous positional versabilities. So whether you stick him at second base, third base, shortstop, MI, CI, utility, you can plug him into you know, more than half of your lineup and be comfortable with the fact that he's not going to burn you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's just a solid, solid piece to have. So um... yeah, absolutely. So the player I underrated the most by far was Justin Steele. You know, he was not anywhere on my radar prior to this season. And frankly, I still don't entirely understand how he managed to put up such a great year with only two pitches that frankly, neither of which impressed me very much, but you know, he just, he continued to do it all year long while I was waiting to see those numbers regress. He doesn't get a ton of swinging strikes, but he, he posts above average rates and he does a really good job limiting damage. I think the, uh, the big things with steel were that, you know, one, he's always been an extreme ground ball pitcher and that served him really well. But two, he drastically improved in two key metrics from last year to this year. And those being chase rate and walk rate. You know, he was well, well below average in both of those last year. And he was something like 92nd and 86th percentile in them this year. So he completely transformed himself as a pitcher with that regards. And he, like I said, was just someone that I completely whiffed on this season. Um, I was going to ask who you were most right about next, but I think I'm going to take that one because, uh, my choice for that one is Justin Steele. <laughs> so, well, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> so he was a guy I really liked coming in this year, um, uh, and actually traded for him in, in two leagues. And he, you know, I, I thought he could cut the walk rate that much. I, I expected, um, I thought he could improve on the K rate a little bit. Um, you know, he sort of did, but what I liked about Steele is, you know, it wasn't necessarily like the pitch mix or the underlying numbers or anything. It was just kind of, he was a guy I got initially interested in because he had a couple of good performances where he had a lot of swinging strikes and then he, but he really struggled with his walks. And so I had him in a couple of leagues last year when he first came up and he was someone that like, I couldn't quit, you know, he was always like, I would drop him, I'd pick him up. You know, I just, I kept seeing that there was some, some more potential there um, because of that swinging strike rate, he just had to get those walks under control. And then what was weird is as it kind of transitioned towards the end of the year, he really did start to get the walks under control, but the strike rate still suffered a little bit. So I thought, you know, here's a guy, if he could just, you know, continue to suppress the walks and then gain back some of those swinging strikes from the beginning of the year, this is the guy that could really take off. 
And sure enough, that's what he did. I didn't expect him to be this good. Um, but this is kind of what we were talking about earlier, where I just like targeting these undervalued guys who, you know, are just solid across the board and have a little bit of upside because you never know wh- which year they're going to hit and just, you know, deliver a performance like this. So uh, that's the player I was most right about this year, Justin Steele, who you underrated. Uh, I should have tried to make some trades with you on him. But um, who was who your uh, guy that you were most right about? Yeah, so you nailed it with Justin Steele. Um, you know, anyone who who knows me from the Fantasy Baseball Discord is not going to be surprised here because everyone in that Discord knows how much I have disliked Tristan McKenzie for the past two seasons. And although he proved me wrong last year, this year really felt vindicating for me because my biggest issue with him, and this is something I've talked about on this podcast before, is his size. He's, it's like 6'5", 165 pounds. This guy's just not built for longevity. So when he threw as much as he did last year, that was the biggest surprise to me. The performance was a surprise as well, but he just does not look durable to me and the fact that he missed so much of this season wasn't a big surprise and you know he ended up returning basically no value for you regardless of where you drafted him and I think after the season he put up last year he was largely being drafted within the top 100 and you know beyond just that I I did think regression was coming he's a guy that's always you know looked like he was getting very lucky he's never had great stuff despite solid control but beyond that he always got hit hard and was never fantastic at keeping the ball on the ground so it to me seemed like just a matter of time where if he could even stay healthy he was going to have huge regression in his numbers yeah yeah i I have a a share two of him and i'm kind of wishing i didn't it doesn't look like the future is going to be uh, too bright for, for no and not there. with all the young arms coming up in that cleveland system i i wouldn't be surprised if mckenzie's not there a whole lot longer he's gonna be sitting next to uh morris in the bullpen there <laughs> yeah a <laughs> uh, couple honorable mentions from this category uh sandy alcantara i really wish i would have sold high on him in the offseason i wanted to but uh couldn't find a great deal and then uh, zach eflin who i really liked that move uh the rays you know putting out a record contract for them. I knew, you know, kind of anticipated he would take a step forward, but uh, he really had a great year as well. So um, those are two honorable mentions there. And then uh, let's transition to what we were most wrong about. So I, I kind of cut ahead of you on the most right. So I'll let you go first on the most wrong. What were you most wrong about this last? So for me, it was another player and someone who I regarded almost as a polar opposite to Tristan McKenzie, despite the fact that this is a, a hitter, not a pitcher, but it's Jose Miranda. You know, he's a guy who I hardly considered the injury risk for, in part because it's, you know, a hitter rather than a pitcher, and he didn't have a ton of, you know, injury history in the past, but that was obviously a big issue for him this year. And when I looked at the metrics from last season, he seemed like a sure riser in my eyes. You know, he had good hard hit numbers, good plate discipline metrics, lots of things you love to see from a young hitter. But even when he was healthy, it just did not look good this year for Jose Miranda. There's still, you know, chance he's still young. Maybe he turns it around next year or the following year, but I was dead wrong about him this year. Yeah, he was definitely a huge disappointment. Um, Mine is not a a single player necessarily. Um, Mine is the uh, Giants pitching staff magic. So, you know, when they signed Sean Manaya and Ross Stripling this offseason, particularly Manaya, I thought this is a great buy low. This is somebody who is going to have a huge bounce back year, similar to what we saw, you know, maybe not quite on a level, but like Kevin Gosman, we've seen it. Obviously, Rodon had a huge year in San Francisco. Uh, we've seen a number of other, you know, free agent signings that they've made really improve and pan out. So I really liked the Manaya signing and to a lesser extent, Ross Stripling. And really tried to target kind of both guys, particularly Manai in the offseason, and it just did not work out. Um, you know, both struggled out of the gate, both were converted to relievers. You know, Manai ended the year pretty good, um, actually kind of came back as a starter in his last, you know, four games of the year, but don't have a lot of faith in 
him going forward and really the the Giants pitching staff as a whole, you know, I think I kind of felt it like it was a cheat code. Whoever would go there uh, could potentially improve. And, and that definitely was proven wrong uh, this last season and, and kind of broader just pitchers going to drive line in the off season. Um, I got kind of fooled by early on by the, um, by the Thor experience where, you know, Dave Roberts was talking up Noah Syndergaard having uh, increased velo and that never materialized and, and things like that. So um, kind of being more skeptical on some of those, uh, you know, perceived gains from going to better uh, development orgs is going to be a, a big lesson I learned uh, from this year. Yeah, I think that's something that, you know, often a lot of us can fall into. We've talked about it a number of times on this podcast, right? We love to see players go to the Dodgers, to the Rays, to Cleveland, to, you know, wherever. But I I think we need to pair that with knowledge of who they already are a lot of times. You know, you touched on Rodon and you touched on Gosman and how they kind of led you to be hopeful for some of these other guys. Guys like Rodon and Gosman have, you know, some really high-end traits or pitches on their own already where, you know, a a guy like Sean Manaya kind of doesn't have any of those things where you hope that San Francisco can elevate him. But I, I think you need a little bit of that base level there first, whether it be, you know, a guy moving to San Francisco or a prospect moving to Tampa Bay or something like that. Yeah. I think for me, it was also, you know, they, they did get increased velo from him. I mean, yeah, he, he did add several ticks to his fastball, um, you know, early on in the year, but it just never materialized. And they never, you know, I wasn't anticipating the way that they would treat their pitching where they would have so many openers and just this weird uh, approach to starting pitching, which we'll see yeah. if they, that continues now that Kapler has gone, but um, well, that's kind of the thing with them. Like they, they almost, it seems like half, you know, three out of five of their rotation spots were just piggybacking guys. Oh, it was. To get yeah. three innings out of Manaya and three innings out of stripling or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you had Webb and then Cobb when he was healthy and, and then, you know, not much else for most of the year. It, it made it hard to watch as a, as a fan. Um, I was not, uh, not too enthused about it, having to watch, you know, all these openers, but um, yeah, it's, it's an easy trap to fall into when there's a history of improvement from an organization though. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, been proven to this point that for the giants getting the best out of their players in that 2021 season, that that was the definite outlier. Uh, and to not really expect <laughs> going expect forward. More. Yeah. yeah. To, to see, you know, free agents kind of thrive there. So yeah, we'll see what kind of new staff they bring in, but that was a, a big disappointment and learning point for me. Um, well, that's all we have for the superlatives today. So uh, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week.